Support for this episode was provided by the Wellcome Trust as part of their Contagious Cities project, which supports local conversations around the global challenges of epidemic preparedness. Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. In the 19th century, Brooklyn experienced several major outbreaks of cholera that killed thousands of people. These outbreaks pushed Brooklyn to develop the infrastructure that we associate with a modern city. In this episode, we look through the lens of disease to understand how a city and its residents coped with an epidemic. Building this modern infrastructure and sort of improving conditions is what allowed people in Brooklyn and the United States to not have to worry about cholera later on. So all of these things, you know, sewers and other types of water systems, access to care, all these sorts of things, and better living conditions made it so that Brooklynites don't have to worry about cholera after 1866. Commonplacing was a practice that was fairly prevalent in the 18th and 19th century. It was a kind of scrapbooking, right? Where people just collected their thoughts. It was like the Pinterest of that moment. Just like you capture something and save it. In this particular section, he's recording information that the New York Board of Health has actually put out to prevent cholera. Like, here's what to do so you don't get cholera. Of course, cholera and AIDS are two very different things, but we listen to this oral history to get a sense of what the experience is like for a patient to have to grapple with a disease that seems so much bigger than humanity's capacity to deal with it at the time. There were all kinds of doctors running around. Some of them were good and some of them weren't good. There were clinics that were around, and some of them were good and some of them weren't good. You just had to figure out, and you were literally just trial and error. I'm happy to be joined by my guest host, Aaron Webker. Aaron is a professor of history and women and gender studies at Queens College. And here at BHS, she is the assistant curator of an upcoming exhibition on the history of health and disease in Brooklyn. Aaron, welcome, and thank you for sitting in on Flatbush and Maine as the co-host for this entire episode. Thank I'm you so for having me. excited <laughs> um, because we are here to talk about something that was not so exciting to have, yeah. which was cholera and its impact in Brooklyn. So I think when we were first thinking of this topic, I honestly wasn't sure what cholera was. I had to go to WebMD like, every, <laughs> like everyone else who tries to diagnose a problem, like yeah. make sure I don't have it. So tell us, what is cholera and how do we understand that disease? Yeah, so before I started researching this, I also didn't really know what cholera was because it's not something that in the United States or in Brooklyn we really have anymore. But we'll talk more about how there are places around the world where cholera still exists. But cholera is uh, intestinal disease, and so you usually get this from drinking water that is not clean. So the bacteria... um, is in feces and so if water has not been properly cleaned that's how it's spread and so you get a lot of cramping and vomiting and all that kind of stuff you associate with intestinal illnesses and then if it gets really serious ultimately you essentially lose all the fluids in your body yeah it's pretty intense and um drawings and stuff like from the 19th century will show people that are like blue and sort of look sunken in a little bit and that's because they when you lose all the water in your body and become like extremely dehydrated you get this weird bluish tinge so that's ultimately why you die from cholera not everybody does especially today because there's treatment options 
But yeah, it's a pretty terrible disease to get today or in the 19th century, as we're going to talk about. Where, how can we understand cholera in the context of like some of the other diseases that people were contending with in the 19th century in Brooklyn? How, how would you place it in the context, maybe in the context of severity or maybe in the context of what people knew? Well, there's lots of other diseases that, you know, 19th century Brooklynites were familiar with and also experienced epidemics of. So the 19th century isn't just like the era of cholera, (laughs) although, you know, those are really um, impactful outbreaks of disease. But, you know, things like smallpox or other things like dysentery, malaria. So there are lots of other diseases that would have been sort of a regular part of life or other big epidemics that would have swept through in other years when Brooklynites aren't sort of dealing with cholera. Yellow fever is another really big one in the 19th century. So, yeah, there is a lot of illness um, in 19th century Brooklyn, for sure. So what do you think makes cholera so uniquely helpful for us to study it in terms of understanding Brooklyn? One interesting thing about cholera is that in this era, it's sort of sweeping the globe. And so there is this really interesting progression where it's starting off in Asia and then spreading into Russia and Europe and then making its way to the Americas. And so we see that Brooklynites are sort of tracking this and waiting for it to come to Brooklyn. That's sort of an interesting thing that even before it's reached Brooklyn, Brooklynites are thinking a lot about it or aware of it or kind of fearful of what could happen. And as we're going to talk about also, there's a lot of really important changes that come with cholera. Brooklynites are forced to kind of rethink the role of government, uh, infrastructure, like what do we need to make a city function as it's growing and changing as Brooklyn really is in the 19th century. So let's bring it to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about cholera in Brooklyn. When did it hit? How did it hit? What was its impact? Cholera comes to Brooklyn. There are four major outbreaks of epidemic cholera in the 19th century. So the first one is in 1832, and then the last one is in 1866. So every kind of decade in the middle of the 19th century has a big outbreak of cholera in Brooklyn. And as I said, those were coming from other places in the globe. So cholera is coming to Brooklyn Often they don't know exactly necessarily how it got into Brooklyn, but it's it's happening there because Brooklyn is engaging with trade globally. And so you have lots of ships and immigrants and all these sorts of people and things right coming into Brooklyn in greater numbers in the 19th century. And the other important thing is that Brooklyn has a really close relationship with Manhattan or New York in this era. And so a lot of times illnesses like cholera might first, you know, break out in New York, uh, but then it's hard to keep, you know, Mm -hmm. people on the ferries and a trade and all this sorts of stuff from uh, coming to Brooklyn. And so often then the disease sort of makes its way from, you know, Canada or somewhere else and then into New York and then into Brooklyn. That's another common route for a disease. In, in, In understanding the scope of this, I think maybe it might be useful to refresh people's memory about Brooklyn itself, right? During the 19th century, Brooklyn's population experienced a significant growth, which I would imagine exacerbates the detrimental impact of cholera on the city. Let's give people a sense of what Brooklyn was like. In 1800, Brooklyn was a farming, was still very much a farming town with less than or a little bit more than 6,000 residents. Mm-hmm. By 1840, so this would be a, you know around the time of that first major outbreak, at least was 1832, you said, mm-hmm. there were about 47,000 people in Brooklyn. And by 1860, which is a, you know, around the time of another outbreak, it had become the third largest city in the country. So one gets the sense that these outbreaks are kind of connected to the increase in people, right? Which makes mm-hmm. which makes sense. The more people to spread the disease and talking about the causes of the disease, um, the more people producing waste. But I'm, I'm interested, how are you able or how are historians able to date an outbreak? How is that something that people can find 
as researchers. They don't have quite the, you know, public health or medical infrastructure that we have today, but they do have some. So, you know, in 1832 with the first outbreak, there are, uh, you know, medical and public health sort of professionals and they convene like a board of health temporarily when like a big outbreak hits. They do try to get doctors to report cases of the illness. They do try and quarantine people sometimes. So there are kind of these rudimentary things that we associate with public health. They are in place. They're keeping track of numbers, something that's very different from our modern understandings of surveillance and privacy is that they would publish in the newspaper like so-and-so died of cholera yesterday. They lived here. Here were their symptoms. And they would just list like here are all the people in Brooklyn yesterday that got cholera and like beware these neighborhoods sort of. (laughs) Right. So it's very different from today. There are a lot of rules about reporting illness and tracking illness to preserve privacy and stuff like that. So I, I imagine that would be useful, though. Back back then, yeah. <laughs> you'd want to know if your neighbor. I I mean, I guess you'd want to know if your neighbor died of cholera, especially when people weren't a hundred percent sure how it was really being spread. We can talk about the, you know what those theories were. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of people's names being published or being reported as mm-hmm. having died of cholera, who who was getting the disease? Who were who were the especially vulnerable populations susceptible to contracting cholera? So obviously anybody could get cholera, but it's usually working class communities. And by this time period, there's a growing immigrant community in Brooklyn. These are the types of people that are more susceptible and increasingly are kind of overrepresented among those people that get sick or that die from cholera. This is partially maybe due to like overall health. They're probably not eating as well. They're probably working a lot, not sleeping enough, those sorts of things. But also because of living conditions, because, of course, um, working people in this era are living in tenements. We don't have any laws regulating housing at this time. So there's no indoor plumbing. If you are a working person in Brooklyn, you are probably using sort of a common pump for water and um, you're going to the bathroom in like outhouses or privies. Sometimes those are leaking into the water supply. And of course, that's partially how cholera is being spread. Yeah, the living conditions are not great and there's not a lot of sanitation in this era also people are throwing trash and waste and stuff like that into the streets so just the conditions of urban living but particularly in working class areas is very different from what we might think about today and also helps foster more illness in those communities so you said this was especially hit the immigrant population hard mm-hmm. um, and during this time there's a, a significant wave of irish immigrants mm-hmm. uh, and i think there's a stat here that in 1849 Irish-born Brooklynites who were only about 20 to 30 percent of the population constituted 77 percent of the deaths. I'm interested, were populations being stigmatized for this? Um, You know, were people not recognizing some of the underlying structural factors that contributed to disease and were just kind of like looking at people and saying, you know, they are carriers or they're bringing this disease? Yeah, I mean, this is also an era of nativism, of anti-immigrant sentiment, particularly in New York, because we do have, you know, a larger immigrant population here than other places. But of course, we know that by the 1850s, you know, there's presidential candidates running as nativists. So it's a nationwide sort of shift and, and phenomenon. But definitely wrapped up in this nativism is fear of outsiders bringing in disease. So definitely in Brooklyn, they're sort of pointing to these Irish immigrants and they're saying, oh, they're Catholics and we hate hate them because they're Catholic and they're poor and they drink too much and all these other sorts of negative stereotypes. But also definitely they're bringing in disease, right? And this in part does tie to a reality, which is that many Irish immigrants coming over here came on ships that were extremely crowded and um, lots of illness occurred on those ships, not necessarily cholera, but lots of other diseases. And so 
yeah, in reality, some immigrants were bringing disease, right? Because they're coming from very poor places in Ireland and things like that. But yeah, disease is very much wrapped up in nativism and kind of fear or reaction to immigrants. I guess as I'm thinking about modern day kinds of of diseases, I don't know that we ever really move beyond from associating a disease with an identity versus a structure. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that happen with cholera in the 19th century? I mean, are there points you you talked about doctors coming together, the medical profession at the time coming together? Does it happen where people begin to say, what are the things that we could do as a city? What are the structural things that we can do as opposed to it's all those people who are bringing the disease? (laughs) A little bit later on. So in the 1850s, that's when this researcher in England, John Snow, discovers that cholera is spread by water. That does change the game a little bit in that now we can build sewer systems or figure out ways to get clean water to communities and stuff like that. So there, there is an acknowledgement that it's something about the environment, right, and that we need to take action to prevent disease in that way. Earlier on, so like with the first epidemic in Brooklyn in 1832, they don't understand the disease in that way. There's a lot of moralizing and sort of like you're kind of a bad person or this is a punishment from God or, you know, they have a different way of thinking about disease that is really attached to a person Mm -hmm. or an identity Mm -hmm. or behavior or something that you did wrong on your part. So that's actually something that changes over the course of these epidemics because of new knowledge about disease. I'd still say that there's always, even with new knowledge, there's still always a tendency to kind of blame certain communities Mm -hmm. and groups for scary things like illness. I don't know that that ever goes away. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what are the kinds of changes that the, that Brooklyn begins to implement in response to cholera? What are some of the kind of infrastructural developments that we see happen as the borough, as the city responds to the disease? They do a lot of different things because basically Brooklyn figures out like we are now this big city, right? Like we're the third largest, largest city in America And you have to have lots of things to make sure people are healthy and have places to live and all this stuff. Uh, One of the major things that they do is to build sewers. So like I just mentioned there, this is partially because there's new knowledge that Mm -hmm. it's spread via water. So Brooklyn undertakes this big sewer project starting in the 1850s. And then it's really a very long process as Brooklyn expands and sort of grows you know, the sewers have to keep following where Brooklyn boundaries are moving to. It's a long process, but it starts in the 1850s. And Brooklyn there also has to deal with a bunch of questions they never had to before, which is like, this is a huge project. Where's the money going to come from? Who's going to do this planning? All this sorts of stuff. So it is a new thing that the city of Brooklyn is like undertaking this very large building and like infrastructure project. So that's a really big one. Another one has to do with sort of the organization of public health officials and thinking about reporting and stuff like that. During the earlier epidemics, it was very much a makeshift kind of public health infrastructure. It was like, oh, hey, we heard about cholera made its way over from New York. Us doctors got to get together. Mm -hmm. We got to track down some cases. We got to like print up a broadside to tell people how to not get cholera. And usually that uh, board of health would disband like at the end of the summer when sort of cholera peters out or Um, You know, things like yellow fever also tended to come in the summer. Later on, once we get to the 1860s, we have a a Metropolitan Board of Health. And so this was a partnership actually between New York and Brooklyn. Mm. And so it it had to have members from both places on it. So that's really interesting because it's also a recognition that the health of both places is tied to the other one. So Brooklyn and New York can't just be separate and like do their own thing. They have so much interaction that they have to work on these health issues together. What I'm understanding from you is that cholera is, in a sense, mobilizing the medical profession to step up mm-hmm. and address what they they see as a public health crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other ways that we see cholera shaping the 
let's say, built environment of Brooklyn, shaping the structure of the city. Yeah, so another big one is hospitals. So at the beginning of the 19th century, there aren't any hospitals in Brooklyn. A lot of these institutions are coming in the wake of epidemics. So the uh, first hospital in Brooklyn, Kings County Hospital, happens right after the 1832 epidemic. It originally is uh, a different institution, but then sort of transitions into a hospital, kind of as we think of it today, in a couple of years. And uh, we also have, after that 1832 epidemic, an institution for orphans, so people who had lost their parents as a result of the epidemic. Um, And then we see a number of other hospitals that are built in the 1840s and 50s and stuff like that. And so this is a way to kind of deal with these epidemics, but also this sort of growing working class population that needs care in a general sense. Because these are public institutions, these hospitals, they're for the public. Are they for everyone? Who's going to these hospitals? (laughs) Yeah. So in this era, rich people don't go to hospitals or people with enough money to sort of pay for a physician to come to their home. That's what you're going to do. And Ideally, you have family members care for you at home. So hospitals really until the 20th century are just a place for kind of working class or poor individuals who don't have other options. So nowadays you'd be lucky as a poor working class (laughs) individual to be able to get to a hospital. Yeah, that's really interesting how that's turned around. Yeah. Um, So this was partially in a response to the health crises that people were finding amongst that population. Right. That they needed this kind of care to build these hospitals. So with doctors mobilizing, with the building of hospitals and care centers for people, were we able to defeat cholera? How is it that the epidemic seemed to diminish? Building this modern infrastructure and sort of improving conditions is what allowed people in Brooklyn and the United States to not have to worry about cholera later on. So all of these things, you know, sewers and other types of water systems, access to care, all these sorts of things, and better living conditions made it so that Brooklynites don't have to worry about cholera after 1866. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In this segment of Into the Archives, we're going to explore sources that give us a sense of how people understood cholera in their time. So Aaron, when you were researching this, what were some of the sources you looked at? There are some kind of medical and public health sources that give us numbers, you know, that physicians are collecting and some of the things that they're doing to try and prevent cholera, like cleaning the streets or quarantining, stuff like that. Another great source to look at is newspapers. They are publishing details about how many people are sick and how many people are dying. They're publishing names sometimes and where people lived and also their symptoms. And sometimes also, sadly, like how quickly they died. They'll say like so-and-so, first symptom at 10 p.m. and was dead the next morning and stuff like that. You can get some details about the people that were sick and where they lived and stuff like that from newspapers oftentimes. Another interesting source that I came across was cemetery records. Some cemeteries, particularly Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, has these what they call cron books but it's basically these registries of everybody that was buried there and they also noted what they died from where they were born where they lived so this was a great starting place for me so I could find somebody's name and where exactly they lived when they died and that they died of epidemic cholera and then kind of to work backwards from there and see can I find them in other places like can I find them in the census can I find them in the newspaper or something like that are there any other details about their life oftentimes with working people it's difficult to find much more than kind of official records or like a burial record but we have at least that much to kind of Mm -hmm. know hey this person came from Ireland or they lived in Vinegar Hill And we do get some little details about their life that way. The source that you've selected for us to look at today is 
the Gabriel Furman papers. Mm -hmm. Tell us who was Gabriel Furman? Why should we care about what was in his papers? <laughs> so Gabriel Furman was a Brooklynite and he was born in 1800 and he died in 1854. So he is one living through a number of cholera epidemics. And he's also really living through these big changes that we talked about in terms of Brooklyn's population mushrooming really quickly in just a couple of decades all the increased sort of trade and movement of people via ferries and immigration. Furman is living through all of these really big changes. So his journals are interesting for lots of reasons, but he also writes a lot about cholera, which is why we're interested about them today. He was a lawyer and a politician by profession, but he also was sort of an amateur historian. Like he recorded all these things about history and what was going on in Brooklyn and he seems to have taken this very seriously, put a lot of time into it. We have here at Brooklyn Historical Society like 5,000 pages of journals. So he kept them throughout most of his life and was a very extensive writer. The body of work is called Notes and Memoranda. And I think one of the things that is striking is how random it is. Yeah. And so I, I thought of talking a little bit about the commonplace book. Commonplacing was a practice that was fairly prevalent in the 18th and 19th century. It was a kind of scrapbooking, right, where people yeah. just collected their thoughts. It was like the Pinterest yeah. of that moment, just like you capture something and save it. And it seems like Furman was doing that a lot. There's a lot of copying. There's a lot of quoting. There are even actual newspaper clippings mm -hmm. that he's pasted into this book. So this is a kind of scrapbook with his thoughts. There is just writings and clippings. And how were you able to use that to help us understand cholera? Yeah, well, he, as you said, combines information from lots of different sources. So definitely in going through his journals, I found information that he copied from publications by the Board of Health in New York or Brooklyn or from other places. Sometimes that would be broadsides that would be like, hey, do this so you don't get cholera. Or So he's, he's copying down stuff like that. He's copying down speeches or announcements made by like mayors or governors or important leaders. And again, not just in Brooklyn, but he's really taking in information from around the country and around the globe. So he's also sort of noting like, it read in the newspaper today that cholera made it to Russia or whatever. Yeah, he's bringing in information from a lot of different sources. He actually also himself served as a health warden. So he had an in and knew what was going on in Brooklyn in a lot of detail in terms of is there a quarantine going on and how many people have been diagnosed and stuff like that. So he doesn't fully get into that in a lot of detail that he personally is sometimes there and recording things but I'm sure that's how he gathered a lot of his knowledge as well. So let's look at some of these documents. What is the first one and what are we looking at here? The first one we're looking at the title on the page says notes on the weather etc notes on the cholera of 1832 continued. <laughs> <laughs> that is the randomness we were talking about like he's writing about the weather and cholera on the same page. Yeah, and so that's actually because in the 19th century, there are lots of different ways of understanding health and disease, and weather and sort of climate and stuff does play into that. There are lots of other important factors as well. Religion is a huge one, and we see that on this particular page, actually. Do you want to read an excerpt? Furman himself was very religious, so he talks a lot about God in general, but specifically in terms of health and stuff like that. And so we do see at the beginning of the summer in 1832, he writes, May the supreme being who has shed so many and so great blessings on my country of his great mercy and for the sake of his son save us from this devouring pestilence. Definitely religion is part of how Brooklynites in the 19th century thought about health and disease. We see that politicians, for example, are issuing proclamations saying we need to have a day of prayer and mm. fasting 
to kind of prevent cholera from getting here or to in response to cholera breaking out. So that's a big part of how people understood disease, especially when we're talking about these earlier outbreaks in the 1830s and 40s. Yeah, the the language, the use of the word pestilence has like a very biblical connotation. What are some of the other kinds of solutions or treatments that he makes note of in this writing. As we talked about, Furman does a lot of sort of copying down of notices or speeches or stuff like that. So in this particular section, he's recording information that the New York Board of Health has actually put out to prevent cholera. Like, here's what to do so you don't get cholera. I'll read it for you. Be temperate in all things. Be temperate in exercise and labor, both bodily and mental. Keep good hours. In eating, take proper food only, in reasonable quantities at proper times. Plain meats, rice, stale or toasted bread are the best food. Abstain entirely from all fruit, fresh or preserved, and all garden vegetables. Laboring men may take salted beef or pork. Others should use them as a relish only. In fine, eat light meals, eat no late suppers, take no food when heated or agitated, and keep quiet after meals. I like that, keep quiet after meals. (laughs) (laughs) Just eat your food and be quiet. (laughs) In drinking, do not drink largely, do not drink spirits unless habit has rendered it indispensable, and then take a little. Be guarded in the use of malt liquors, all other fermented liquors, as spruce beer, mead are particularly pernicious cold drinks of all kinds are improper so there's a lot going on here there's a lot going Um, on here you know i was actually rocking with this for the first part (laughs) i was like okay you know um be temperate and exercise labor bodily and mental keep good hours and eating take proper food and reasonable quantities at proper times that's pretty sound advice i don't know if it's going to help you prevent you from getting cholera but that's pretty sound health advice right right? today we still think exercise eat well sleep right yeah but there's some things in here that are very particular yeah uh, that that are peculiar and probably specific to both the time and how people understood the disease so um why would why would people be told to abstain from fruit and garden vegetables which is like the base of the food pyramid right now I have no idea. They just had some of these things are just kind of very particular ideas they had about where the cholera came from. The overall idea is it because of the washing of the maybe the fruits I mean, were washed in maybe, water, like grown now, in messed up soil. Yeah, now with our like modern view of things, maybe it could have been something like that. At the time, they wouldn't have understood it like that. I think also the just overall message of like be temperate is a very 19th century thing is to be like a proper person and a good Christian and healthy you should not give in to excess in any realm of life whether it's like gambling or drinking or eating too much rich food those are things that sort of proper 19th century people would scorn. So it fits very much in the time in that way. And so there's there's a clear uh, discouraging here of drinking, right? Um, yeah. Of drinking heavily or drink. It says unless habit has rendered it indispensable. I know. So like unless you're an alcoholic. It's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where you have to drink. And then it says, and then take a little, you know, like yeah. if you feel like you have to. And so this is, of course, there's, being temperate in terms of your disposition but then of course there's the temperance movement yeah which was a move to restrict or prohibit the consumption of of alcohol mm-hmm. um, and that was very was gaining ground yeah. you know throughout a good portion of the 19th century definitely and it was very much a reaction to the um, incoming uh, waves of, of especially Irish and Catholic immigrants mm-hmm. who were oftentimes identified with excessive alcohol uh, consumption. This announcement from the health authorities that Furman copies, uh, I think, gives us an, an, an interesting snapshot into what kinds of health advice not only was being provided, but that what people were taking in. And then you think of Furman, why he thinks this is important to write down. Mm-hmm. Are there other places that we would find these announcements? Or is, is Furman kind of, luckily for us, one of the places where it's either easier to find or maybe the only source at it at this point? 
Yeah, well, something like this probably would have been printed on like a broadside and that's how people in the time would have seen it, right? It would have been handed out or posted somewhere. We do sometimes have copies of those that have been preserved in archives, but those things were often thrown away because people didn't think they were important back in the day. So those can be challenging types of sources to find occasionally. So this is kind of just a different and interesting way to get at this information that might not be preserved right. or might be kind of hard to find because maybe it's, you know, one of a bunch of broadsides in an archive somewhere. Right, right. And it's organized. Yeah. I mean, there is a curation that Furman is engaged in. Yeah. You know, it's a little wonky or weird at times because, <laughs> you know, this is titled Notes on the Weather and Notes on Cholera. So it's not right. not immediately making sense sometimes. But, I, you know, this is a value of his papers yeah. uh, and of his notes is that there was a curation where he was collecting materials on this. Yeah, there's a definitely a very clear section on cholera or like in earlier volumes on yellow fever right like when it's happening and when he's collecting and putting all these things in there so it might be a little harder to find information on kind of more random topics if you're researching something in Brooklyn but because this happens in like such a specific moment of like the summer months of 1832 it is very clear that that's dominating what he's putting into the book in this period in the same section he uh, makes note of some of the theories that people had about how people contracted cholera. And this gives us some insight into that thinking. So one of the things that he writes a lot about are atmospheric conditions. And I just kind of made fun of him for writing, (laughs) you know, about the weather and about cholera. So maybe there was a connection between the weather and cholera in his mind. What, What is he talking about with atmospheric conditions? Furman was really interested in all of the different theories that scientists and doctors and all sorts of people were putting out there about cholera. He clearly was like reading medical journals and reading all the things in newspapers and stuff like that. For him, he really believed that weather and things like humidity and even the amount of light and the type of light and stuff like that could impact if cholera broke out in a certain area or if certain people were going to be susceptible to it. So for him, and he is not dissimilar from other people of the time, a lot of people in the 19th century believe that environment or climate in, in some sort of way could impact disease. So, yeah, he writes a lot about that. And sometimes actually very poetically, he writes about like the light in the morning and, you know, the dew and all this sorts of stuff. But then he also talks about miasma theory, which is a prevailing theory in the mid 19th century about disease. And this basically says that miasmas or gases from rotting material lead to disease. So if you are exposed to these miasmas, that's why you get cholera or something else. He writes a lot about that sort of stuff. And, you know, even though that might seem a little bit silly to us, there are some grains of it's truth not, to yeah, it, you I know, like because I think they're getting the correlation. Yeah, <laughs> they're getting to the right correlation that there's there is some kind of coincidence or association yeah. that is that makes sense that's just the causation the explanation right. it's like they know like when stuff smells bad that's when you get you know cholera or yellow fever right. or something right. like that right. similarly sometimes they come to a sort of treatment or preventive and again like the logic might not be the same that we would come to today but for example another theory in this era was that these tiny animal creatures were in things like water and that is what caused disease so that actually doesn't sound that different from germ theory right and so that would lead some people to boil water because they believed that these little creatures were in there or that these miasmas might get into your water if you left water kind of open and of course we know today that that is a way to prevent yourself from getting cholera right right, is having clean water so it's sort of interesting because we might look at people in the past and be like they were so silly for understanding disease in this way or trying to treat it in this way but there's actually i think more things that are kind of similar 
you know, than we would like to admit, maybe. <laughs> I guess we should say the stuff that we've been reading from Furman's papers have been handwritten. You mm-hmm. know, the announcement from the public health officials, he copied over in his own hand in quotes. But there is something here that isn't handwritten that's actually looks like printed text that maybe he stuck on a page or something and it looks like a broadside or an announcement or a flyer and it says cholera in new york exclamation mark tell us the story of this uh, which is somewhat explained by what follows it's really misleading because you look at this page and you think it's an announcement from the public health department partially because of sort of how the text looks and when the you know Board of Health or whatever would issue something, they often would put in big letters collar at the top and then say, be temperate and you're in- eating and drinking and stuff like that. But this is actually an advertisement for a lottery. So yeah, you have to kind of look deeper like a, at it. A, a money lottery? Like yeah. a raffle? Yeah. And <laughs> one, when I saw this, I was like, they had lotteries back then? But yeah, this was an advertisement for a lottery. And so the person putting on this lottery obviously wanted to catch people's attention. And so Furman writes about this in his journal that he was in New York, in Manhattan, and he sort of saw all these people that look really worried, this kind of growing crowd. And he sees that they have this piece of paper that says cholera. And he thinks that cholera has made its way finally to New York. And so there's a lot of fear in this crowd. And then ultimately they look closer and they sort of figure out that it's this lottery and that this person is capitalizing on the interest in cholera and sort of fear of cholera to get people's attention. As you can imagine, people were very upset. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, it says in the fine print when you look more closely, don't be alarmed, reader, at first sight, as attraction is the only object of the above announcement. Like, they're like, our only purpose in announcing cholera in New York was to attract your attention. But this does give a sense of how much cholera was on the mind of people and how much fear or panic the sound or word of it actually triggered in in the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. They would be reading in newspapers and sort of, you know, tracking it as it moved across the globe. And so definitely there's a lot of fear of like, when is it going to make it to our ports and when are we going to have the first case? And so I think they were really upset and Furman does note that the lottery person gave like a formal apology (laughs) so you know again we see versions of this in our modern day right where sort of a a company or something might use something that's a little unsavory yeah this is kind of tacky yeah it's so tacky this is very tacky and and it's it's especially when people are like dying from this yeah like it's super insensitive for to use this as a basis for advertising. Well, at least we knew that um, tackiness is not a contemporary phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> we know that, you know, people are of of older days are just as can be just as insensitive and trifling uh, with their <laughs> use of disease to sell lottery tickets. That's so crazy. Yeah. So we've kind of gone through some of the really interesting things that are in Furman's papers. What do we not learn from his papers? What can't they tell us or don't they tell us? Furman himself never had cholera and nobody in his family had cholera. So we don't get a super personal perspective. We don't get a lot of I mean, we get fear, but we don't get sort of other emotions that people might experience if they or a loved one or a friend, you know, has an illness. Um, Again, I do know that he worked as a health warden and he would have perhaps been visiting sort of a place where people might have been quarantined or seen people, but he doesn't actually write about that in his journal. So I don't know for sure how much exposure he had to people that really had the illness. So we don't get that perspective. We don't get the perspective of the working class Brooklynites that disproportionately would have had cholera. So that's a big thing that we don't get because he is very wealthy, well off from a respected Brooklyn family that owns property. We are getting just that sort of perspective. So what became of Furman who, you know, he was chronicling this disease so closely copying notices and announcements about how to treat it. What became of Furman in his chronicling of this disease? 
So he himself never had cholera, but he was significantly impacted by it. Because he had such a fear of contracting it, he started using opium. In like the 1830s and 40s, people thought of opium as a preventive for cholera. Furman starts using it because he's afraid of contracting it, perhaps maybe because he is sort of part of the public health response and maybe interacting with sick people. You know, he doesn't say anything about this in his journal, but over time he withdraws from public life. And so it seems to be because of addiction. So he had been a politician, very active in public life in Brooklyn, you know, very social, giving sort of talks on history and science and stuff like that. And then at a certain point it just stops and he moves to New York for a little while. He's not seen by his family and friends for a while. Um, he's forced to sell off his prized library. So as you can imagine, Furman was a big reader, right? He's chronicling everything. He's taking all this information in. So he amassed this really great library and he has to sell it. He's also not able to take care of his family. And yeah, so he ultimately kind of dies in poverty, kind of distanced from his life because of his addiction, which is a result of this fear of cholera. In this Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to a narrator talk about his experience with HIV and AIDS. And we've done a few episodes in the past where we have used narrators talking about HIV and AIDS. And I actually, I wish we had other uh, uh, oral histories that were people talking about other kinds of illnesses. And I dislike having to come back to HIV and AIDS as the kind of fallback for any discussion of public health or any discussion of major disease. But there are a couple of challenges when we're doing these kinds of episodes. One is we don't have oral histories from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But the other is that AIDS was this epidemic that struck fear mm-hmm. um, that could have been a death sentence or in, the, in its early stages of people's encounter with the disease in the early 80s and, and even early 90s. And it is, even though I think people would say we've gotten it under control with medication and treatment and important ways of preventing it, it still is probably the last or the most, at least the most recent epidemic on the scale of what the kinds of epidemics were that we read about or talked about in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So, of course, cholera and AIDS are two very different things, but we listen to this oral history to get a sense of what the experience is like for a patient to have to grapple with a disease that seems so much bigger than humanity's capacity to deal with it at the time. So with that, we're going to listen to Albert Johnson, who was born in 1946. He moved to New York in the 60s. In 1996, he learned that he was HIV positive. In this excerpt, he talks about his experiences receiving different kinds of treatment. This interview is part of our Voices of Crown Heights collection. And with that, we're going to play the clip. There were all kinds of doctors running around. Some of them were good and some of them weren't good. There were clinics that were around and some of them were good and some of them weren't good. You just had to figure out, and you were literally just trial and error. You had to see people uh, or you saw your friends, oh, I'm going here, I'm going there, and you're going, okay. Um, I remember I went to this one place and it was the only place I could, you know, I I trusted the person. Uh, I remember my first set of lab results came back and the only thing that everybody was concerned about with was your um, uh, T-cell count. Well, the T-cell count is one thing, but then there was that viral load. That was the one that was most important. This man looked at me, he said, well, your T-cell count is this, that, and the other, so you don't have full-blown AIDS and blah, blah, this, that, and the other. He said, but I don't know what this viral load means. What? You gave me a test and you don't know what it means? Uh, Okay. Well, I was popping these pills and I started to have headaches, the diarrhea. I couldn't function. I ended up uh, numbness in my fingers, which is that beginning of the peripheral neuropathy. 
I couldn't walk on my in my uh, house shoes and this kind of stuff. And bare feet was worse. Um, I found a, a group, the Brooklyn H Task Force, and he got me to. Uh, the guy's name was Michael Goodhope, and he guided me around, and he got me to a point of where I was going to go to this clinic for nutritional evaluation. I was sick. I mean, I couldn't even put my shoes on, and let alone go out in the wintertime. It was unbelievably painful. So I, I eventually had one of these days where it was good, and I made it over to this clinic. It was called Batanzas Health Center. And I got in there. It was a long walk, but I made it inside, and I sat there, and they called my name to go to the lab. And the lab technician, she looked at me. She said, Mr. Johnson, do you always walk like this? I said, lady, my feet hurt so damn bad. She said, do me a favor, just sit right here. And she went and got the doctor, Dr. Santos. Dr. Santos came back and he talked to me for a few minutes. He said, do you have any place you have to go? I went, no. He says, here, I want you to get in this gurney. I want you to stay here and I'm coming back. And he said, don't go in. I said, well, I can't leave now, man, trust me. He stayed gone and he came back in and he started asking me questions about the medication and you know how I was feeling and the whole thing. This is the first time somebody's actually talking with me and not to me. Mm-hmm. He's asking me questions. And at one point I'm feeling, I said, don't you have to go to see other patients? He says, no, I've got other people taking care of these other folks. I need to see you now. And I went, okay. So as he's talking with me and the whole thing, I'm now starting to feel very comfortable because this other person had told me, oh, these headaches are just something, I'll just take a couple of aspirin, I'm gonna say, but it doesn't help. He says, well, you're not taking this stuff wrong, but as long as your, CD, your, uh, your T-cell count is improving, you're doing all right. So I told him this, he says, no, you're not doing all right. What you have now is the beginnings of peripheral neuropathy. You could end up in a wheelchair. I'm like, okay. And he says, you're, what's causing you to have these things is your treatment. He says, what he's treating you with now, that's, there's these two things and this, that, and the other. He says, now I'm going to tell you one thing. You don't have to come back here, but I'm saying to you, don't go back to him. And I went, oh, okay. So I ended up going back to Betances, and within six weeks, I was able to walk and put my shoes and stuff on and sleep at night. That's when I was introduced to nutritional things. They changed my medications around. I was introduced to acupuncture. I was introduced to all these other things because they treated me as that was the whole body. Uh, And he says, we don't even know, and he's very honest about it. He said, we don't even know whether this is is going to help you, but I can tell you one thing, it's not going to harm you. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, and I started to see progress. Physically, I started to see progress. What really stood out to me when I was listening to this, in light of what we have discussed, thinking about Gabriel Furman's papers and the different theories that people had for cholera and the different kinds of treatments that were offered or suggested by the public health authorities that were reflected in Furman's papers. And um, as much as you know, some of the remedies seem to be weird or out the box or didn't wasn't clear how it related to the actual disease Um, it spoke to there being a kind of a still unknowing unknowable character of the disease Mm -hmm. which if we can't appreciate about cholera in the 19th century because we know so much about it today I think we can appreciate about HIV, which we know a whole lot more about today, but there still is, not just among the lay lay public, there still is a lot of ignorance about HIV, um, and there's still a lot that people feel we don't know yet. Yeah, that was something that also really struck me with this clip was like a sense of it's all kind of trial and error, both for physicians even. They don't really know what's going on in like the early years of the HIV epidemic and they're trying different things and just figuring it out right or how like the one guy was not even looking at all the different you know tests and stuff accurately it seems sort of 
crazy for our modern standards, but yeah, putting ourselves in this moment when there's a lot of uncertainty and really like trial and error is the only way to figure out what might work. What I really like about including this excerpt uh, in this oral history in this episode is that it kind of turns the perspective for us you know Mm -hmm. we've talked about cholera just kind of like as a historical phenomena we've talked about Furman's experience as someone who didn't have cholera who who through his various items he collected into his notebooks um, gives us a sense of what it was like to see to read and hear about cholera but not experience it and in this excerpt we are put into the minds of a patient someone who actually has a disease that is on an epidemic level i think in particular getting at just his feelings right that's something that's really lacking from the Furman journals and again because he didn't have the illness we We have fear of the illness, but we don't have all the things that come with it of sort of being stigmatized or discouraged or tired or all of those different feelings or emotions. And also really the physicality of the disease. Yeah, I actually appreciated that this particular narrator, Albert Johnson, was really vivid in his like, and I was tired and I couldn't walk and, you know, how debilitating it it was. So we you get a almost visual sense of the disease taking its toll on on someone. Yeah, when he said like he couldn't even walk with his house slippers, like that tells you how painful it was to walk. And so again, that's something we're really missing in Furman's account of cholera because we know that cholera was a really terrible illness to have and that you're you know, losing all of your bodily fluids and becoming this sort of sunken blue, you know, body. And we don't get any of that from that source. So it's something that's really missing from that telling of cholera. One more parallel that I saw in this excerpt to our cholera and Furman story is sort of thinking about infrastructure and how a city kind of reacts to new health challenges. So people are probably more familiar with a lot of the groups and things that pop up in Manhattan to deal with HIV. And that was an issue for Brooklyn, actually, is that a lot of sort of hospitals or activist groups or community groups are Manhattan-based. And so in this excerpt, he mentions Brooklyn AIDS Task Force, which was one of, if not the first, Brooklyn-based community group to support people with HIV. And in particular, it is created to help um, Caribbean immigrants and people of color who many Brooklynites felt weren't getting enough access to care and things like that. So this is another example of how when cities are faced with a really serious health challenge, they have to fill in the gaps and figure out how to care for people and deal with these major illnesses. It's autumn which is my favorite time of year. Back to school, back to activities, out of the kind of laziness of summer, things are just picking up and they're certainly picking up here at BHS with a full slate of fall programs. Erin, what are you looking at checking out? The program I'm looking at checking out is called Immigrant Women, Labor, and the Quest for Gender Justice on Wednesday, October 10th at 6.30 p.m. At this program, Bernice Young, a ProPublica reporter and author of In a Day's Work, The Fight to End Sexual Violence Against America's Most Vulnerable Workers, is going to talk about the experiences she writes about in her book. And she's going to be joined by Rachel Israeli of the Center for Family Life's Cooperative Development Program in Sunset Park, which is a group that organizes domestic worker cooperatives. And then Joanna Morales will also be joining them. She is a home care worker and she will share her perspectives as a worker owner of Golden Steps Elder Care Cooperative. And that program is $5 and free for members. 
The event I recommend, although I kind of don't want to hear about it, is the not-so-sweet history of sugar. And I think a lot of people have sweet tooths. I know I have a sweet tooth. (laughs) I do, too. And it's a struggle to not eat sugar. But maybe if we learned about the not-so-sweet history of sugar, that would help us get off of sugar faster than we we can now. Uh, This event is taking place Tuesday, October 16th at 6.30 p.m. It's going to feature James Walvin, social historian and York College professor. He is the author of Sugar, the World Corrupted, From Slavery to Obesity. In this, he uncovers the fraught history of sugar from its role catalyzing colonialism and the slave trade to the current contribution to our health crises. That is Tuesday, October 16th at 6.30 p.m., $5 for uh, non-members, free for members. We welcome you to check out all of our programs, and we will have links to these on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest co-host, Aaron Webker. And thanks to the Welcome Trust, who provided support for this episode as part of their Contagious Cities project, which supports local conversations around the global challenges of epidemic preparedness. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org flatbush maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Aaron Webker.